This is a Retail Insider Podcast. You're listening to the interview series. Welcome to the Retail Insider Podcast. I'm your host today, Craig Patterson. And we're joined here today with two retail experts. We've got Gary Newbury. He's a senior executive on call, focused on rapid performance improvement in retail supply chains in the last mile, and the founder of RetailAid.ca. And we've got Jeff Davenport. He's a real estate uh, analytics uh, expert and strategist. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, Craig. This is a bit of a part two. We were talking about shopping centers and the future of uh, what we're seeing in North America. And uh, now we're going to talk a little bit more um, about the anchors uh, or former anchors, I guess we would say, (laughs) because we've seen uh, many department stores over the last, uh, say, two to three decades shutting down. Uh, in in North America, and we're going to talk about both Canada and the United States because there are quite a few similarities around shopping centers. So, um, let's start the conversation about department stores generally and see what are we seeing in terms of you know the fewer department stores uh, within shopping centers in North America. And Jeff, you might have a bit more insight into any sort of statistics around that. Sure. Um, so. In the United States, they track department store sales uh, in their NAICS codes. And so you can look at how uh, they've changed over time. And in 2000, that was the peak year for department store sales. They came in at around $232 billion. As of 2019, those sales had fallen to $135 billion. So they shaved almost $100 billion off of their sales figures over 19 years. Uh, wow. 2020 was a bit of an outlier just due to all, you know, the chaos. Uh, and it came in at $113 billion. So uh, a bigger – they, they had been losing about $5 billion a year on average in sales. Um, and uh, we'll see where they end up uh, once 2020 and 2021 average out. But I would guess it'd be around $130 billion in sales uh, average between those two years. So that's kind of where we are right now. And when you look at uh, the, from, we, we got this information from directory of major malls, shoppingcenters.com. Um, there, there are 258 regional and super regional malls in the U.S. and Canada that are grappling with at least one large anchor closure, uh, most likely department stores. And that's uh, of their data set that represents about 18.3% of all regional and super regional malls that they track. So it's, it's widespread, it's pervasive. And admittedly, they said, you know, this is what we know of and can track. There's probably more out there than, than we have in our data set. And there's more coming as the close, you know, there were a lot of closures that, that have been announced, but they actually haven't happened yet. So they don't count it vacant until it's actually vacant. Just chip in and just think about what's going on with that format. I mean, if, if the sales have gone off so badly, Obviously, somebody else has gained from it or different formats gained from it. And I suspect that is companies like or retailers like Walmart and Target. They they may look like the modern day uh, department store plus others of the periphery stores. So people aren't going to department stores in the traditional sense of going in and getting all your housewares and clothes, blah, blah, blah. Uh, that format is a very much a dying format. 
Well, for department stores, well, every every retail concept has usurped the department store because now the internet is the department store. Yeah, so that's where you can discover brands, where you can get stuff. Amazon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that. I mean, that's department store. The shopping mall is a department store. The shopping mall itself. You know, the the, the parasite ate the host. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. It's true, isn't it? I mean, I, I I'm still blown away that. We talked about this, I think, last time. The, the department stores actually helped develop the shopping centers. In some cases, were the developers. And I'm thinking, well, that was like slow suicide because you, you basically created something that puts you out of business. Yes, yeah. it's it's phenomenal. And then you know, the internet came along. That wasn't department stores that did it, but certainly they participated in e-commerce, and, and so did everyone else and their dog. Right? Imagine how many more department stores there are in the U.S. today versus uh, how many there were in 2000, or even go back to. You know, the data set began in 1992 and sales back then were probably about $170 billion. So um, it, it's, they, they are, they are very lean. Their sales figures go back to the, you know, a comparable, you'd have to go back to the 80s. Imagine how many more locations there are today versus back then. And it's, yeah. I know the same holds true for Canada as Canada is interesting. If we're looking back to 1992, I, I have some information that very few people have around some sales numbers. Uh, you know, certainly in 92, we had just lost Simpsons department stores in Ontario. Um, the Hudson Bay company actually had purchased the retailer, was a more upscale version of, of Hudson's Bay in about 1978, but shut the uh, business down in 1991. Um, Woodward's, we saw the final stores close in 1993. So we did see quite a few of our department stores shut down in Canada fairly early on. We only have one traditional department store type retailer left in Canada, and that's the Hudson's Bay uh, department store chain, which, uh, uh, you know, we used to have other ones in Canada. The United States still has has more than Canada in terms of a general selection. We, we literally have one traditional department store chain left in Canada. We lost Sears uh, in early 2018. Um, I'm not sure. If, I don't think we would actually call Target a department store, but, you know, large format retailer. So we've, we've got smaller, well, not even that small. We've got Nordstrom, which I wouldn't call it department store, at least in a traditional sense. We've got Holt Renfrew, which is a, a high-end, um, you know, large format retailer, kind of a Neiman Marcus type of retailer with with more concessions. But um, it's fascinating to see. And why I brought up the fact that I've got these sales numbers is that I was looking at the sales numbers uh, with a, a gentleman uh, who had numbers from Eaton, Eaton's department stores just before it went under in 1999. And we were shocked to see, not even including inflation, that uh, some of the sales numbers for the Eaton stores in the same malls where the Hudson Bay Company currently has Hudson's Bay stores, the numbers, not including inflation whatsoever, are quite similar. So the sales numbers in some of these Bay stores are actually not that high. So so quite fascinating. Um, but at the same time, not a lot of those Bay stores are going to be closing anytime soon. That's more insider information. So it's it's fascinating to see where things are going or not going, uh, where people expect Hudson's Bay to shut most of their stores. And, and I don't believe that's happening anytime soon. So there have been a lot, gentlemen, there have been a lot of vacancies in shopping centers, as we've talked about. Uh, what are we seeing in terms of redevelopment of these boxes or, or you know, whatever has happened to the spaces where these large anchors were at one time? Boy, I think everywhere you look, it's, it's, they're replacing them with anything but retail. Um, and you know, it's part of that is is getting back to a diversification. Um, you know, but it, not putting all your your eggs in one basket. But what we see uh, down here are rental apartments, hotels, big box retailers. Sometimes they'll take a department store box and split it in half and put a Dick's Sporting Goods in one. I, you know, it's just those 
uh, power center large box retailers that we see come in sometimes, but not as often as we had prior to the, uh, I guess, 2019. And um, restaurants and entertainment, that's the other. And and you know, I, these are all complementary uses or you know, these big box retailers are their own thing out there. They're going to draw their own customers that, that, that come in and, and kind of fill that department store loss with driving traffic. But what I find so, so painful to me about it is that there's nothing being done to support the small shop retailers that remain in that mall. And that's, that's when Gary and I really started talking and digging into this, this issue on how, how can a, la- a mall landlord support and protect or enhance the income stream they already have at their disposal. Yeah, I, uh, I, I agree. Some of the uh, aspects about Amal are you know, generating excitement, and excitement tends to come not from big box chains going into Mal's. People expect to see certain you know, apparel retailers in there. You know, if, if they're not in there, where are they? But what, where the excitement comes from, from a retail point of view, is quite a lot of the independents who may struggle to stay in a mall and maybe they're not getting the right type of traffic or you know there's some some issue that they go in and they come back out what the important thing is they bring excitement they bring some kind of very uh, unique kind of proposition into the mall which is sometimes quite bland with uh, the other banners the, the chain banners so th- i think that's the the essence of retail is having that platform of, you know, the ones you expect to see there, but also lots of nooks and crannies for the independents with uh, interesting propositions. And, and I think the larger issue here is, yes, they're doing something. They're re- taking space and redeveloping it. But, you know, they need to first pay attention to how they support the heart of their property, which is that small shop space inside the mall. And because no, no one's going to want to go to a mall or go to a property at a mall where the, it's a dead mall, it's completely vacated and you got a, an apartment complex attached to it or a hotel attached to it. It's going to drive down the property value of everything around it. So the, the value of a mall is the retail itself. And there's things you can do to enhance that but you can never take the retail out of a mall and think it's going to be okay. It's not going to be a mall. It's going to be a piece of real estate, right? That's right. It'll be something different. It won't, it won't be, it won't have, have what it has today. So, I mean, there's, you can always demolish it and do something different with it. But if you have any intention of, of keeping this as a viable uh, shopping center in any way, shape or form, you got to protect that, that core portion of the property. Uh, I was just reading um, Sears Canada used to own, uh, through an acquisition, a, um, a parking lot and an old a former Sears store at the Metropolis at Metrotown in Burnaby, which is in suburban Vancouver. What's interesting about this is the land is a uh, Concord Pacific bought the land or a developer um, probably spent hundreds of millions of dollars because that's what land is worth in, in that part of Canada. Uh, and, you know, they're putting 10 condominium uh, apartment building towers there it, it's 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 incredible like they will not have retail they may have retail at the base that's you know mandated or whatever may serve the buildings above it but it's a, it's a money-making scheme 
uh, more than it is, you know, an effort to, to, to improve the shopping center itself. Now, granted, this was literally a different ownership than Ivanhoe Cambridge, which, you know, owns the metropolis at Metrotown itself. So Ivanhoe Cambridge didn't really have a say. They, they can't really say, well, we don't want you putting condo towers here. They're probably happy, actually. They're going to get a whole bunch of new customers. They're going to literally live upstairs. But, but it's fascinating to see some of this redevelopment of these anchors, which uh, in some cases are going to be, you know, you're saying a sports store, a food, beverage, restaurant, entertainment. In some cases, these things will be torn down. In some cases, they'll become uh, distribution logistics centers, uh, which we'll talk about in a sec. This is where Gary will definitely be coming into this conversation quite a bit and uh, uh, and other uses as well. Um, and, and some of the this is just a bit of an aside, but I was told, uh, at least here in Canada and probably in the United States, that some of the older department stores in the shopping centers, older being, I mean, post-1950, but, you know, not very recent, or some of them were built so well that they're actually it's actually extremely difficult to tear them down. Like they're built like bunkers, like you could try to set off a bomb and you're not going to blow this building up. So uh, that in itself, I think, is going to be a challenge as we you know, see shopping centers at least being attempted to be redeveloped over the next uh, uh, few decades is the actual quality construction being detrimental to the sure. redevelopment effort. Absolutely. There, there, there's I mean, there's a lot there's a lot to talk about, uh, you know, in, in all of that. Why are they doing what they're doing and why are they not paying attention more to the needs of their current tenants or or maybe not even needs that they, they know of. So it, it's, it, it is perplexing to me to see them, you know, jump so hard at other uses. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not arguing against them. I'm just saying we can, there are things that they can do to enhance their current revenue stream. Oh, what about uh, micro-fulfillment in, in shopping centers? Let's talk a bit about kind of the omni-channel mall and, uh, uh, and what we're starting to see, because consumers are increasingly going online, but but we also still have this physical world that we're that we're dealing with. Craig, I you know I'd love to hear your definition of omnichannel. Would you mind sharing that with us? Oh, I mean, <laughs> and it's a word that isn't being used as much anymore. I mean, it's really that you know online in store, the blurring, the lack of you know, differentiation, lack thereof. Um, you know, shop where, how, and what you want is you know, that's sort of where things have come where, you know, we're in a, I think we're in a world where the digital and physical have merged. And, uh, um, sometimes I don't know if I go into an Apple store, like, you know, I need a new computer. Um, if they don't have something in stock, if I go, if I choose to go into the store, which I may not have to, I may, I could order something online in the store, outside the store, stand out in line and do it. it it's, it's, <laughs> It's kind of everywhere, anywhere. Yeah, I mean that, that's how I view it as well. Um, you know, every, folks talk about having a storefront, brick and mortar storefront, and an online website where you can order goods from the website or walk into the store and pick up your goods. But that's the hybrid. That's not omni-channel, right? I mean, so a lot of people think that's omni-channel because I've got a website and a store. And. Omnichannel is much more broad. I mean, I think in my mind, it stretches, you know, not just the shopping experience, but how do you get the goods experience, whether it's, you know, picked up in the store or brought to you immediately, you know, or, or you have to wait a couple of days. And then there's that whole online presence of customers, the interaction online with between retailers and customers. Um, it's it's all encompassing. Plus, knowing more about your your customer via their data that they put online, and and keeping up with them, and hopefully 
trying to, to serve them and cater to those guys by, by what the, you're seeing them talk about out in social media. I mean, it's, it's a, it's so multi, multi-pronged, but there are some key components of that. Don't you think, Gary? Yeah, and one of the things that we, we often don't say uh, as, as part of the overall uh, omni-channel uh, retailing or combined retailing approach is, is returns. It's an inevitability as, mm-hmm. as a pandemic forced companies into lockdowns. Uh, their main revenue stream was weirdly e-commerce. And as a result of e-commerce, often a very high returns rate. And so, uh, customers at one level that they, they love shopping in store, online, whatever it might be to have it delivered to, as, as you were suggesting, wherever they happen to be in store, in the mall, outside the mall, on the way to work, on the way to somewhere, or at home. So all these options are, are, are all aspects of omnichannel. But one of the things that we still got to work on is returns, because this is a this is a burden for uh, for uh, consumers. They they buy you know five uh, pieces of apparel and they use their bedroom as their changing room, and now they need to return three. Now they're going to face oh, I have to take it back to a store or I have to get a label and rebox it and send it back. It, it's a it's a problem. And then they've got to struggle to get their refund. So we've got to, generally in the retailer community, uh, which I, I embrace the, the Mao in that concept, is we have to also uh, address the, the subject of returns. They are a big issue for consumers and they can literally turn the fortune of a, of a retailer on, on that last. You're only as good as your last return. So do we all agree that every we believe that all retailers are going to have to adopt some sort of omni-channel process or, 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 or presence? There aren't many that aren't going to have to. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe your local super cheap convenience store that is grab and go. But even then, I mean, you know, Dollarama here in Canada has e-commerce. I don't know why. But if you if you haven't got online or you're just in the early stages, think about blending the the channels, not not thinking we've got our store channel, we've got our e-commerce channel, and keeping them separate, separate teams, separate organisational structures, separate ways of replanning them and, and and fulfilling customers' orders. So we have to combine them. You know, we have to find ways of integrating our internal processes because a customer doesn't really care about how you segregate things internally. They really don't give us stuff. So we m- we must take the lead from a the consumer. They don't care nor should we. And so, you know, if the retailers have to take the lead from the consumer, then the landlords have to take their lead from the retailers being led by the consumer, right? That would make logical sense. And so that, that means the landlords really need to get involved in the process of helping their retailers achieve some sort of omnichannel presence. And that's, you know, that's where the idea came from is, is you're looking at, in a scattering of, of different companies under one roof that are probably too small individually to, to create an omni-channel presence. I mean, you look at the three that really do it and do it well here in the United States is Amazon, Walmart, and Target. Uh, and I think they still have further to go to, to achieve full omni-channel. 
But as far as who's out there today doing it the best here, it's those three. And it shows in their online sales and presence. And, um, you know, we think that the small shop retailers, are, if they want to remain competitive, have to do it. And the only group that can pull all these guys together is the landlord who's got the roof over their head. And, and they need to spearhead the effort. And that's, that's why we really think that, that the landlords need to, to be involved and, and take these department stores and, and do something with these closed department stores and do something with them that supports this omni-channel effort that the retailers need to achieve to remain competitive in the marketplace. And I wanted to ask specifically, this might be a bit more of a question for Gary, but uh, um, you know, in terms of micro-fulfillment centers, once operational, um, how would they function, I guess, from a broad standpoint? And, uh, um, and yeah, I mean, let, let's get into that conversation a little bit in terms of, you know, and then retailers and consumers, how they can benefit from this as well. Yeah. Let's just sort of step back and try and understand what a micro-fulfillment center is. And, and it, it can operate in two, two ways. It can actually be a physical manual operation. So it would be a small-scale warehouse. So you may have 10... 10,000 SKUs in it, 10,000 items, and you have pickers going around and actually picking it on behalf of the customers, whoever they might be. It could be, you know, if you're in a mall, could be obviously the retailers. Mm-hmm. Or you could go down a much more uh, sophisticated route, which is to run an automated and miniaturized version of a warehouse. So in a space of about 10,000 square feet, you could actually house maybe 50,000 SKUs. You could probably do a lot more than that. If you, if you knew the rate of sale of a cube, you could actually take the, the, the units of holding, which are typically something like a blue tote bin, and divide into different things. So you could actually really mult- multiply up your, your ability to hold lots of different uh, products uh, at, uh, uh, available to, to, to the e-commerce stream as such. But the when we think about that, operation and, and we think about the, the general f- footprint of a department store which might be you know 100,000 150,000 square foot in the space of 10,000 square foot we can hold like 50 or 60,000 maybe more uh, so suddenly we, we, if we start to think about the micro fulfillment concept multiplied several times within that same space we could be holding 2 million SKUs very easily and the, the benefit of, of the automation is that you can put an order in, press select, and you could have it within minutes. Whereas typically, when you're running a conventional operation, a manual operation, you put an order in, you have to plan it, you have to release a pick wave, you have to allocate a picker, you have to give them some instruction, some instruction, they go around, they chat to their mates, they finally get the picking done, and it could be an hour before you actually see an output. Uh, They also have, uh, unlike uh, staff, they they don't take time off. It's always there. It's always ready to go. So we can use the micro-fulfillment center to do a number of things. The first one is obviously things like click and collect or making goods ready for home delivery. The other one is to replenish your stores. Now, if we think about our current situation where people feel a little bit unsafe about going into stores, going down narrow aisles and stuff like that, imagine a world where we only have to take have a day's worth of stock in a store because we're not waiting for a truck to come in before we, you know, put it in our, into our back room and then flood the 
the, 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 the store floor where we need lots of shelving. Imagine a world where perhaps we, we, we think about our SKUs, what we want to have in now in our sales space, but we also get from the micro fulfillment center, which is in the va- potentially in the vacant uh, anchor store, a, a nightly feed to top up those shelves. We can probably take the shelf facing will be needing to be smaller. They don't need to be as long because we're not having a week's worth of stock in there. And we can start thinking about taking some of the shelving out to give a much more kind of boutique-y, luxurious kind of look and feel for the store. We can actually move from, you know, a traditional bricks and mortar store thinking like, you know, you know there's some there's stuff on the shelf coming and we kind of serve you to a much more showroomy kind of situation where you can rely on the fact that you've got stock really close to hand and it comes overnight for normal replenishment, but also you could um, operate a sort of endless aisle concept where you have stuff in the store which you've got available for like the common sizes of, say, footwear or whatever, but you've got access to the unusual footwear sizes within, say, 10 minutes. If you think about the typical department store as it was trading, they'd say, oh, we've, we've got that back at warehouse. We can have it to you tomorrow or two days' time when the truck comes in. From a customer service experience, that's not really particularly brilliant because I have to come back to them now. So there's lots of things that the micro-fulfillment uh, um, centre can actually provoke, facilitate, and, and for retailers to perhaps embrace a different way of thinking about what does, what's the purpose of a store? How can we use the store in a slightly different way? How can we create more excitement in the store? And that micro-fulfillment can help that along. I think it all can also help bring in digitally native brands, right, that, that, that may not or may be thinking about a brick-and-mortar presence or a specific – and checking out markets that way. I mean, it could allow them to – to test the water before taking the plunge in the brick and mortar, but it would also help build that relationship if the landlord, uh, mall landlord, is running the MFC. Um, we could, are you calling it the mall fulfillment center now? Is that, is that what we've decided? Yeah, uh, <laughs> Craig's named it. He's taken that copyright. <laughs> it, it, it can it can just help them, you know, get in and 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 meet that digitally native tenant and start a conversation with them. And, and maybe something comes of it, and, and maybe it doesn't, and they, they get booted out of the MFC. Yeah, and, and just to think a bit, a bit wider than just like what we might consider to be bricks and mortar retail, if we, if we have retailers, which might be food service, that can go into the micro-fulfillment center. That can provide that service to restaurants and entertainment facilities with, within that situation from the micro-fulfillment center. They can get their big trucks coming in once every two or three days, put it into a micro-fulfillment centre and feed across to, to these other facilities to, to support their businesses. Because one of the things in food services that they want little and often, but the truck doesn't arrive you know, with little and often. Interesting. My goodness. And um, I guess, you know, sort of a final, I don't want to say thought, but overall conversation is, you know, kind of the future of how mall landlords and tenants will be working together, whether or not that's, Micro fulfillment, or, or or even sort of smaller retailers, looking for a bit of insight here. Uh, Jeff, you'd put together a bit of a uh, uh, overview editorial. Tell me what you're thinking. Uh, can, can landlords and tenants work together to get this done? Uh, I I I know they can. I just don't know if they will. 
And that, that's, that's, you know, I, I don't think they have a choice. I think you have a window of opportunity here, Craig, where you've got, you've got empty boxes on your property that you need to do something with. And if you don't do some, I mean, if you lose three out of four department stores when it's all said and done, and you have three different uses, you put an office, uh, an apartment, and a, a hotel where the department stores used to be, you've missed the opportunity. And you'll never, you're never going to get it again. And I, I think that this is a window. They, everybody needs to put down their swords understand, you know, they need each other to survive. And if, if they cannot get over, you know, it's been a bumpy 10 or 15 years between retail retailers and their landlords, without a doubt. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of things haven't been great there. It hasn't been an apocalypse, but they sure as heck haven't been great either. So there's been a lot of stress between the, that relationship. and. I think, I think they they really uh, they, they've they've got to figure out how to get it done because if they don't, the property is not going to be competitive, and it's I, I think you've heard me say it before: murder suicide. You know, if, if somebody really wants to litigate this thing into never happening, I suppose that they could, but I'm I'm hopeful that they reach out and they take you know the new technology that's out there. And and wrap their arms around it and and do something with it that's productive for the tenants that they already have. Yeah, and to that point, really, in some ways, that the the, the technology, the micro fulfillment concept, of, you know, miniaturization of warehouse and then automation within that. Some part of this has been around for twenty years, but never at the kind of scale that is available now. We've got so many new players in in the in the space saying, "Hey, what about my my solution? It's brilliant." Um, so, you know, we can leapfrog. If we were trying to do this 10 years ago, uh, we'd probably t- talk about dematics and, you know, what, what's that about? Well, they can't get to us for another 18 months because they're, they're all the books for anyway. But now we've got so many players that can help get us uh, as Mao, as, 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 you know, partners, retail partners, get us quickly into position with a lot of different options, a lot of uh, scalability in, in, in these solutions, a lot of reliability in these solutions to allow, once we make that 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 psychological jump to we have to collaborate, we have to, we're both in this boat together, that implementation of an MSC is relatively straightforward. And, and you've seen, and I think this is one of the most important parts. You've seen when Walmart announced that it was, you know, acquiring Jet and going to partake more, invest more heavily in a marketplace solution, their stock got a huge boost. And, you know, as we look at, can this be done? And, and, and you know, if so, how do we pay for it? I think it would really pay for itself. I think the first landlord to announce that they're doing this would be rewarded by analysts and investors and, and uh, hopefully their tenants as well uh, who, who need this help to go to, the, to an omnichannel presence. I think the rewards would be immense and they would see a huge boon in their stock price that, that could, could really just offset the cost of investment for doing it. 
not to mention build new bridges out to those digitally native retailers that could enhance the brick and mortar space where they may have vacancies. Oh, it sounds great. Well, we've run out of time here, gentlemen. Thank you so much for uh, the input in the discussion today. Uh, the future of shopping centers is very interesting. We also did a uh, part one of a podcast talking about the future general redevelopment of shopping centers, as well as what might be done to keep those retail elements to make them interesting. So uh, thank you again. We've got Gary Newbury. He's a senior executive on call focused on rapid performance improvement in retail supply chains in the last mile and founder of RetailA.ca. And Jeff Davenport, welcome back again. He's a real estate uh, analytics uh, specialist and strategist. Uh, and uh, thank you so much, gentlemen, both of you for being on the podcast here today. Thanks for having us, uh, Craig. Thanks so much, Craig. Great, great being here. And I'm Craig Patterson, Editor-in-Chief of Retail Insider and the host of the Retail Insider podcast here today. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Take care and bye for now.